You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Eddie Badrina, CEO of Eden Green and previously the co-founder of BuzzShift that was acquired just a few months ago. And in this episode, we'll talk about BuzzShift, how it got to the acquisition, how it got to the acquisition during the pandemic. And also we'll talk about Eden Green, the fundraising for it, and uh, a bunch of other topics such as mentoring and angel investing. So Eddie, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Buzzshift. Yeah, absolutely. So one, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on. Uh, it's, it's always interesting to hear from other entrepreneurs, uh, and founders about how they started their companies and just the trials and tribulations of, uh, of starting companies and then raising money. And so it's a, uh, it's always great to, to be on the shows like this, just to uh, be able to impart a little bit of my own experience. I wouldn't even call it wisdom, just my experience of going through that process. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. hundred percent. Thanks for taking your time to participate. So, um, yeah. actually I'll, I'll change my question a little bit, but if we're going to get to it in just a few yeah. questions, but first let's talk a little bit more about Eden green. So you've raised $12 million for it so far. Can you tell us a little bit more about the idea behind Eden green? What does it do? Sure. So eating greens vision is to change the way that we farm food and that we feed people. And we do that through a patented platform, a greenhouse platform uh, that allows us to grow a lot of greens up to 500 tons of greens in one year uh, in just an acre and a half of a greenhouse uh, through our vertical farming technology. So we're able to shrink 35 traditional farming acres into an acre and a half. And nice. uh, while we're using that a little of land, we're also using 98% uh, less water than a traditional farm. So uh, whereas a traditional farm uses about 800,000 gallons of water, uh, we only use 90,000 gallons of water. Nice. And, uh, and by the way, uh, one of our households uses about 45,000 gallons of water a year. So uh, in in the time that it takes two households to uh, brush teeth and flush toilets, uh, we are able to grow uh, uh, close to, you know, 800, 900,000 pounds of leafy greens. So it's pretty amazing uh, yeah. that we're able to do it so efficiently. Uh, and then light costs compared to, you know, some of the other uh, controlled environment agricultural uh, entities our light costs are about a fifth of the electricity light costs that others are. So less, less land, less water, less electricity, uh, and energy, uh, all to feed folks locally. Uh, so, you know, really, uh, the, the, uh, mission is to change the way, uh, that we redefine uh, change the way that we define locally grown and we redefine it in terms of it, uh, greens being accessible. Uh, greens being uh, uh, consistent, year-round consistent, so eight, 11 to 13 harvests a year. Nice. Wow. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and, and it's safe, right? So food safety is, is paramount to us. Uh, and when you're shipping that amount of leafy greens on a uh, every other day, you know, twice, three times a week basis, you're really cutting down on 
the the safety uh, issues that come about when they're in the supply chain for so long, whether that's uh, whether that's rot, waste, uh, pathogens, uh, all all those things uh, are cut down in terms of food safety because it's indoors, uh, because it's hydroponically grown, because it's the way that of uh, the way specific way that we grow it, uh, and because uh, it's being harvested so frequently. Nice. This is really cool. We'll definitely get back to it. Yeah. Uh, closer to the end of the episode when we're going to be discussing your current situation, what you're currently working on. But first, yeah. let's talk about Buzz Shift a little bit more because recent mm -hmm. acquisition, we just have to address it right away. So first question yeah. is actually about your background. So you have a degree in psychology, a PhD in international affairs. And question is, do you think it actually helped you running the company? It, I, it did. I'll say uh, my psychology degree I use every day. And, uh, and when you get into, you know, into the stage where, uh, where I am in terms of founding companies, starting companies up and, you know, and running them and then, and then dealing with investor relations and ultimately, you know, with M&A, it all comes down to relationships and negotiations. And with relationships and negotiations, uh, the psychology of those uh, is absolutely key to nail down for you to be successful in sales to be successful in management and to be successful in, in, uh, in negotiations. So, you know, for me, psychology is a huge, huge deal. Some of the best books, you know, on sales, some of the best books on leadership, uh, are all, I mean, they're, they're just, they're psychology, right? That's all they are. There's tactics for sales and there's, you know, tactics for leadership at the end of the day, it's interpersonal relationships and how you manage those. So the psychology degree was super, super useful. Uh, and then my master's in international affairs and public administration really taught me the side of, uh, I'll, I'll just call it from a sales perspective, uh, very long sales cycles with the federal and state governments. Uh, but it also taught me the complexities in all the different stakeholders that are, uh, that are evident in, you know, one contract getting through government or a bill or a law getting through government. Uh, so dealing with, uh, multiple stakeholders. Uh, in the government really provided me with a perspective on uh, complex sales cycles and how to actually get them to close. Uh, and, you know, and when it comes to uh, raising money, it's the same thing, right? You've, uh, and, and, you know, we'll just jump right into it, but in raising, in, in, the, in the whole sort of uh, ecosystem of uh, business, especially of high growth tech startups uh, and capital, You've got uh, two really uh, dissonant, different, disparate types of groups. You've got the capital uh, who obviously have the money, but there are people behind that money. And then you've got the operators. And most capital uh, sources have never operated a business before. And so, and likewise, most operators don't understand the needs and the pressures of the capital and their, their, you know, their ability to raise capital and deploy capital and, and their levers and metrics for success. So if, if neither understands each other, uh, it makes for very, very, uh, volatile situations, uh, when things go south, everyone loves it when, when deals work out, but in high growth tech startups, just by the nature of those startups, you know, you're going to have a lot of failure. You're going to have a lot of 
uh, businesses that don't make it. And the ones that don't make it, but the capital and the operators still come out on the other side with good relationships for future ventures, they both understand each other's levers and metrics for success uh, so that they're able to win, lose, or draw. They're able to come out of it with relationships uh, intact and then to go on to be able to you know, possibly uh, raise funds and then deploy the funds uh, with the same people, but just, you know, different businesses. Does that make sense? hundred percent. It surely does. Finally, some positive attitude towards actual gain and education, not from the perspective of just, you know, having the paper that I have a degree in XYZ, but in actually applying it to the real life. Very, very encouraging. So the majority of our listeners are actual early stage startup founders who are mostly just starting their first company, so first-time entrepreneurs. And the very frequent question that I get is, what should I be focusing on when I'm just joining the startup world? Should it be you know, doubling down on increasing my network, connection to other founders? Should it be trying to get in touch with other investors, You know, just to get to know them? Because potentially, maybe I'll be raising money from them in a year, maybe two years. Uh, from your perspective, you know, you've done it personally, few years ago, what would be your recommendation to those people? Well, it, it's hard because I would say all of the above. As a, as a startup founder, you've got to be able to find product market fit for your idea at the very outset, right? Uh, you, you've got a great idea. You've passed it around some friends and family. They think it's a great idea, but that doesn't mean to say it's, it's going to be successful. So. Uh, you've got to identify product market fit within a pr broader market beyond your sphere of influence. That takes networking, right? So you're working on the product and then you've got to get this word out, this idea out to people who are just beyond your sphere of influence. Uh, and then, you know, to do that, unless you're independently funded, you've got to figure out how to get funds to, to build that proof of concept. Right. And so it takes all three. And that's, I mean, that's why being a startup founder is very, very difficult uh, because you're having to wear a lot of different hats. So the first thing I would say is find your and identify product market fit and then start to validate that through small tests. Uh, you, you know, as a startup, you want to make the most mistakes. Uh, at the very, you will make your most mistakes at the earliest part of your uh, of the life of your company, and so you want to spend the least amount of money at that very early stage. Uh, unfortunately, most startup founders go the opposite direction. They want to make a huge splash. They try to make, you know, raise a bunch of money. They have these this huge vision, and so they raise, you know, they try to raise a ton of money on this huge vision when most capital partners just want them to take the first step to find that proof of concept and come back to me with, you know, with, with some validation and then we can put more money into it. So, you know, that that's where, you know, that is where um, the ideation and the sort of the futuristic thinking comes in conflict with the practical execution of it. Uh, so, you know, you really, as a startup founder, you really need to be able to balance all that, both the relationships as well as, that the product itself, product management, and then the product market fit uh, within the marketplace, it's really hard to do that all by yourself, which leads me to my next thing, which is most solo founders end up failing. 
and it's because they cannot do everything themselves. They don't have all those skill sets. And so good startup founders are very self-aware of what they're able to do and what they're not able to do. And they, uh, most, most of the capital partners that I know will encourage the first thing they'll do, uh, with a startup founder is encourage them to find a co-founder, either a technical co-founder or a co-founder who knows the market really well, or can take things to market. Right. Um, so that is, you know, I think finding a co-founder, uh, who shares the same vision, uh, and who shares, you know, uh, just just common either interests or common backgrounds um but most of all shares the same vision for the product is one of the first things you can do to raise your probability of success as a startup absolutely i've seen way too many solo founders just burning now because it's hard cheaper it's, it's really hard to pull all of this stuff by yourself so yeah finding co-founder is extremely important but that's actually next question that I was not planning to ask, but now I'm gonna ask it anyways. Uh, so you've been a founder yourself. How did this process look for you personally? So when was the moment when you're like, okay, now I'm gonna go out, search for co-founders. Was it you, you know, going through your LinkedIn connections and seeing if someone's relevant to this topic or going through your personal, you know, actual friends of yours, old friends of yours that might be interested in just emailing you them, texting them, asking to chat about this stuff. How, how did this process look for you specifically? So for me, it looked like back to your original question about networks, it looked like, uh, I just tapped my network. So, uh, actually it was, it didn't really start, uh, like most do. So for BuzzShift, uh, I was uh, coming, I was in Dallas. I had just come off a technology startup where I was a director of communications that failed. Uh, it, it was a, ironically, it was a, a solo led, uh, company a solo entrepreneur who had done well in his first round or his first uh, venture sold it and then started this next one. And, uh, and he, he pulled me in to be the director of communications and marketing. And, uh, as while it was going downhill slowly, uh, I got my, uh, I call it my school of hard knocks MBA, uh, in startups. I saw everything, uh, from the founder's <laughs> perspective, from finance, investor relations, operations, sales, product management, everything. And then I realized I could run a company on my own. So, uh, I hung my shingle as a consultant in the marketing and strategy world. And I was just having, I was, you know, I met someone through, uh, through just a professional organization here in town. And, uh, and he and I just met for lunch and he was coming off of an IT services business and he was selling off of his contracts and he was just sort of done with the IT servicing, uh, professional services route of that nature. And we were talking about what we were seeing in the marketplace and what people were needing. And it quickly became apparent, uh, that one, we saw a, a real need for a, a, a a holistic digital agency uh, that wasn't just focused on SEO or social media or website development, but that was looking at things really strategically and holistically. And this was back in 2010. And so we saw the need in the marketplace. We were both feeling it. And we said, man, we see the need. We kind of think about things the same way strategically. Let's see if we can create an agency that is just digitally native uh, and digitally focused and, uh, and, and so we did, and we were, we had, we brought in, 
clients from uh, our previous relationships. And so we were profitable from day one. And so that's how BuzzShift was born. I mean, that's how I met my co-founder uh, was just through networking, but then also just talking through uh, market needs uh, and then seeing if there was a product market fit uh, for our, you know, for our services. And, and indeed there was. Uh, so that, that was my experience with BuzzShift. And we bootstrapped that thing, uh, no loans, no lines of credit. Um, which is, which is an anomaly. Uh, and then in 2016, about, about six years later, you know, we, uh, we had the chance to, uh, to be acquired and we weren't looking for it. Uh, they came looking for us, but it was after six years of building our brand of, uh, having a, a brand and being known for excellence and being known for innovative, creative thinking, uh, that, that, uh, and then, then honestly, some really sort of uh, prescient SEO work where uh, I think by 2012, 2013, if you looked up digital strategy, uh, we were the original digital strategy agency in the United States. Uh, and so if you looked up digital nice. strategy on Google back in the day, we would come up uh, on, on, you know, organic search terms uh, in the second or third spot. So uh, that really, you know, heightened our brand, heightened our biz dev. Uh, and we had created a set of core values of not chasing after the money, not chasing after certain clients, uh, but being true to what we were good at. Uh, so by the time 2016 rolled around, you know, six years later, we had grown to a size enough where uh, people started to pay attention. Uh, we uh, were acquired in 2016. And then uh, just through a series of uh, uh, Lemony Snicket and series of unfortunate events, uh, through a series of unfortunate events, uh, we were able to uh, purchase the company back uh, for 11, oh. month, yeah, 11 months later. Uh, so uh, I, I won't get into the specifics of it, but I just will say uh, we sold high and we bought very, very low. Uh, so, uh, had a chance to, to reacquire, I, I called it uh, intentional decoupling. Uh, but, uh, in 2017, we, we, you know, we continued, we just started it back up, uh, that was, were profitable within 60 days, uh, and then proceeded to grow it and build it in a slightly different way. We called it BuzzShift 2.0, uh, grew that to, you know, uh, to, again, to a size where, uh, we attracted, uh, you know, potential acquirers and we actually just sold uh, BuzzShift again for the second time uh, in February of uh, 2021. So uh, that is that is the story of BuzzShift. Uh, it was I'm very very thankful uh, for my opportunity there. Very thankful for my my co-founder. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, just the statistics and the probabilities, uh, we beat all the odds. Right? We we uh, we were. We made it past the two-year mark of a of a business of being profitable mm -hmm. and and uh, solvent. Uh, we made it past uh, the challenge of being co-founders uh, and not dissolving over some disagreement, uh, and then we made it to a point where uh, where we were able to be acquired. Uh, all of those hurdles, if you will, uh, are very very difficult uh, to to overcome, and and we managed to do that and managed to do it and and, and remain friends and business partners and colleagues. Uh, and then the fact that we were able to do that twice uh, with the same company is, is a little bit unheard of. Uh, so that that's the mm -hmm. story of BuzzShift. Yeah. I mean, it's a double acquisition. I've been running Fun Reading Radio for nearly two years by now. We're 
280 episodes recorded, even more than that. I've never heard of double acquisition before. So <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely something special we got here. Nice, nice work here. I mean, it's it's incredible. Uh, great job. So let's move on to talk about about the current events about um, yeah. Ed and Green. Uh, you already described what you're doing, how you're special, and it's just awesome. You know, increased production always makes me happy because I'm less afraid of <clears throat> starving to death in a big city, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, so great job. Thanks for saving us all, I guess. Um, let's move <laughs> on to talk about fundraising. So you raised over 20 million, not 20, 12 million dollars for it so far. Uh, can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about that fundraising? I mean, I know ag sure. agricultural uh, technology is really hard for fundraising specifically. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you approach that problem? Yeah. So when I came on to Eating Green, uh, it had already raised a significant amount of uh, private capital and uh and it's it's privately held uh but we had uh, a built we had raised enough pack capital to build a 40 40 uh, square foot r d facility uh, out just south of fort worth so uh, that was what i would say would be the uh the technological scaled proof of concept right the 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 technology itself is uh patented uh, here in the U.S. and in a number of countries around the world, and then patent pending and a dozen others. Uh, so, so the technology is there. Uh, the the two brothers that started it, that invented the technology in their garage in South Africa, proved it on a very small scale, but then brought it to the United States uh, to to prove it on a larger scale. So, forty four thousand square feet R and D greenhouse in in Cleburne, and uh, and that that required quite a bit of funding. Uh, but then it was enough, you know, we, we had gone through the technological proof of concept and we really needed to prove out the business model uh, and the, the commercial proof of concept because these greenhouses are economic units unto themselves. Uh, and it's our vision to have a mesh network of these independently owned and operated greenhouses all around the United States and around the world uh, that are that are uh, producing greens locally for distributors, for uh, retailers, for the community, but that are also working together collaborative, collaboratively in terms of innovation and uh, you know technology innovation and then growing innovation. So you know to to it, but it all starts with one greenhouse. Uh, so this this current raise was for this uh, this commercial proof of concept that these greenhouses actually do what they say they can do from a pro forma basis, uh, and so really you know from a, from a fundraising perspective it was just convincing investors to say hey listen the technological proof of concept is there but this business is only going to grow if we can show people that uh, these greenhouses are indeed economic units. Uh, and that they are uh, profitable at a certain uh, a certain size, and then that they increase in profitability when you when you grow and scale these things out. So that's what that was the 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 message and the narrative around this last fundraise. Uh, and I think it it resonated with uh, with our investors because uh, it was not just uh, it was not just an incremental type of raise, which, you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for that, but it was really more a big vision of, Hey, you know, this is the big next step to get this company, uh, to a scalable level. Uh, and it proves out, it was a, it was a logical next step, uh, in terms of, uh, proving out simultaneously the business model 
as well as uh, some innovations that we made on the technologies and the greenhouse side. Uh, so, you know, behind every fundraise really is, uh, is a narrative. Now the narrative may take place on a slide deck and, you know, uh, you and I, and, and probably your audience has seen a ton of different slide decks on, Hey, here are the 15 slides you need in a fundraising deck, right? Or mm -hmm. here are the, you know, here are the four things you need to hit during a fundraising pitch. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, tactics and, and frameworks, but at the end of the day, fundraising is really about telling a story. Uh, and, and in our world, uh, the, the best product doesn't necessarily win the best story wins. So he who has the best narrative wins, uh, he or she who has the best narrative wins. And so it really comes down to that narrative and that storyline that you want to tell, you want to communicate to your investors. And for us, that storyline was, uh, a progression, but leaps and bounds progression of, you know, atomic sort of atomic this works at a at a plant level spot now this works at a technological you know 44,000 square foot spot now this works on a you know now we're proving out that this works on a commercial uh you know top line opex bottom line uh you know 72,000 square foot uh footprint and that's what we take to market Nice. Good narrative is always the key. That's very true. And yeah, congrats. I mean, $12 million, that's a pretty good race. Congrats on uh, impressing so many investors. <laughs> that's, that's a big deal. Uh, so let's, let's mention, uh, actually, never mind. Uh, you mentioned on our pre-interview call that you are using something called redemptive culture within uh, the company where you believe mm -hmm. in it. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I took a note saying redemptive culture that's it that's all yeah. that the note says can yeah. you can you tell us a little bit more about redemptive culture and what it means yeah so so a, a big part of our story is how we are building this company differently than others and so there, there's a there's a group out of new york city called praxis labs and they really espouse what we call it a redemptive organization. And, and I'll give you a compare contrast uh, illustration. So most companies that we see, most companies that are started up uh, are what we call exploitative. They may not want to admit it, but they are. And those are companies where uh, the leadership eats first. And what I mean by that is they're taking off the top, right? They are, uh, they're, they're going first among their employees. Uh, and, and leadership eats, you know, leadership eating first is just, uh, you know, a, a simple way of, of phrasing that, but it's a, a exploitative companies where leadership eats first, where employees are, uh, treated unfairly, or they're exploited in terms of the value exchange of, uh, services for, for salary and benefits, maybe sometimes. Uh, and then lastly, you know, exploitative companies are a net negative on the culture and uh, community around them. And we see a lot of those all over the place. And most people, honestly, startup companies, they don't mean to be exploitative, but the way that they position their core values or lack thereof is basically a money grab, right? They're after profits over everything, right? Uh, 
some companies are ethical and those are the ones that we see and we laud whether it be you know patagonia or um, whole foods or things like that right uh, and those ethical companies are where leaders eat alongside their employees it's where employees are treated fairly and it's where the community and culture uh, is net neutral or it's advanced because of the co the company being in its presence and those companies, man, uh, those are to be uh, singled out and congratulated because there are very few of those companies that practically are uh, are ethical. They may say so in their core values, but it's just stuff on a paper. Uh, they, they really practice what they preach. And then there's the company that's really hard to find, and it's what we're trying to build with Eden Green, and that is a redemptive company. And it's a company where leaders eat last, where leaders are sacrificial. Uh, it's a company where employees are not just treated fairly, but they're treated, treated generously. Uh, and they're blessed because of working for that company. And then it's a company where uh, the culture and society is not just advanced because of it, but it is renewed and it's redeemed uh, because of it. And so, uh, that is the type of company that we are trying to build at Eating Green. And that is part and parcel to our story. It's part and parcel to our narrative where everything that we do is guided by, hey, are we, are we uh, not just adding to the community with 30 jobs uh, you know, per greenhouse, but are we, are we renewing uh, the, the, the community and society around us by redefining uh, what locally grown means? Are we are we renewing and and uh, and redeeming society by how we treat those thirty employees, by how we have set up a a program called the First Fruits Program, where we're actually uh, integrating giving back up to ten percent of uh, these harvests to the local community at a highly highly subsidized rate, and all the while the company is still profitable and generating returns for its investors like th those type of things that are integrated into our business model take a lot of work to figure out how to engineer that in but it's at the very beginning it's the very base of the business model so that when this company expands it's built into the scalability it's not diminished because of the scalability and it's not like only achievable once we scale it's built into the scalability of our business nice i love that culture i think everyone gotta love that culture and yeah i mean people follow the stuff <laughs> it's, it's just mutual beneficial at the end of the story you know um so moving on to the very last two questions of today's episode first question being do you do any angel investing or mentoring because i know a lot of founders who sold their previous companies frequently go into mentoring a lot and sometimes do occasional angel investments do you do any of that i do so uh it's funny once you once you sell your company or once you have some sort of liquidity event uh that there are a lot of folks who pass deal flow or pass like hey do you need capital for this and for that and my first comment is, I, I needed you like five years ago when I was growing this company. Like, I don't need you now. Uh, but then my, my second thought is, yeah, you know, I don't need it necessarily. Maybe I do. Maybe it's a conversation worth having. Uh, but I know of folks who, you know, who have good business ideas or passing good business ideas around. 
Uh, and you know, in this stage of the economy right now, where uh, there's a lot of cash sitting on the sideline, uh, and uh, cash, you know, as Ray Dalio said two or three weeks ago, cash is trash, right? Because of uh, just the impending inflation, and then more of an injection of cash into the economy. Uh, you're really seeing uh, investors in cash looking for any sort of yields, which there are not a lot right now. Uh, so, you know, I'm seeing both a lot more capital uh, lining up and saying, hey, we're ready to invest into the marketplace. Uh, and then a lot more deals coming uh, where, you know, uh, people have great ideas. Uh, the problem is, again, it's the capital versus operator uh, conflict and tension. And so I've been well equipped because of my experience, uh, to, to look for both good deals as well as to be able to, uh, uh come upon capital and filter that out, uh, and match them up of capital, you know, the right type of capital, uh, that are aligned in the way that they're thinking aligned that the way their you know, their investment thesis, uh, are and uh, and you know in terms of what they're looking for in return with with deals that make sense, uh, you know for 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 what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Right, understood. So you're facilitating some deals, helping people find the funders and connecting them with founders. Uh, I love this kind of mitigators. Um, so on this positive note, moving on to the very last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So Eddie, what do you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? And keep in mind that 95% plus of our listeners are early stage star founders. My call to action to them is... Uh is make sure you find your product market fit first uh, before you do anything else. And then to really be cognizant of, uh, of, I guess, if you create a habit of uh, small tests and iterations and feedback loops, uh, that, is, that is a very, very good sign to investors uh, that you're going to use their money wisely, right? Because big bets from a founder uh, don't necessarily tend to work out well in the context of you have this one big idea, but within this big idea, you have to have small steps to achievement and small steps to uh, validate your decision making. And the more that uh, capital can see uh, and uh, see that validation process, that feedback loop process, uh, and the more that they can, uh, that they'll be able to commit capital. Uh, and then there's just a transparency issue when that happens, a transparency, it's not an issue. It's a good thing. It's a transparency, uh, sort of perspective that when they see those small little feedback loops, it just helps them, uh, in terms of trusting you more, uh, with the stewardship of their money. So uh, I would encourage people again, and product market fit is found through just an iterative process of, uh, of both feature sets as well as business models uh, and, and little, little uh, sort of adjustments to the business model uh, before you are able to say, okay, I think we've got this nailed down as far as, you know, as far as the horizon will take me. And this is where I need this next tranche of money. And this is what I'm going to use it for. And it's a very measured uh, metrics driven approach to growth that uh, capital partners really, really appreciate. In addition to the big vision 
that you're trying to sell them. Nice. Great call to action. Specific. I love it. Um, my call to action is going to be much easier, though. <laughs> Check out the description of this episode. I'm going to leave a bunch of links in there, specifically to Eddie's LinkedIn, also to uh, Eden Green. So if you're curious to see more about what they're up to, what they're doing, what they're building, how are the yields growing, uh, check it out. And uh, probably I'm going to leave a link to something else in agricultural technology, probably to an investor in AgTech specifically. So people, if you're interested in AgTech, definitely take a look in the description of this episode. Some good stuff is going to be there. And as usually, have a good day.